This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Welcome to Window on the East. I'm Liam Halligan, Editor-at-Large of BNE Intellinews. In this edition, I catch up with the iconic investor and economist Mark Faber at a CFA conference in Poland. Author of the widely read Gloom, Boom and Doom monthly newsletter, Swiss-born Faber's long been based in Asia. Well known for his contrarian views, Faber tells me about Donald Trump and deglobalization and the implications of Brexit. He also shares his views on Central and Eastern Europe, where he says stocks are very undervalued relative to the rest of the world. Sitting at a bar in Warsaw, I start by asking Faber about the rise of Western populism. It seems to me that uh, the concept of democracy among the so-called elite, the political class and wealthy people is, well, democracy is great as long as you vote the way we want you to vote. But as soon as uh, everybody can really express his own view and vote the way he wants, then democracy is suddenly not as desirable as it was before. And then it's dismissed as populism. Well, basically, in a country, if everyone can vote, this is populism. In other words, you have everyone having the same vote, whether he's an illiterate person or a university professor. His vote counts the same. And you can argue, well, maybe democracy, after all, is an experiment and is not the most desirable system. Even an illiterate person can have the same power as someone who is educated. But I can also make the case that maybe the illiterate person has a different skill set and a different perspective of the world than the highly educated academic. And maybe he sees things that touches his life, the common man's life, more than people who is remote uh, in a glass palace of a central bank. What's uh, your view on how America and the world will fare under President Trump? Well, as you know, before Brexit, the elite and the political class warned that it would be a disaster. And so far, it hasn't been a disaster. It's been bad for the pound sterling, but economically, not that much has changed. And similarly, the elite in America, both the Republicans, uh, the media and the Democrats warned that the Trump victory would be a disaster for the economy. Well, so far, the stock market has made a new high. It remains to be seen how the economy does. Uh, But in this context, uh, what will happen is if the economy slows down and goes into recession within the next two years, The media will blame it on Mr. Trump. There's no question about this. If the economy in Britain goes into recession, they will blame it on Brexit. The economy in the US has been in an expansion, uh, admittedly, of poor quality and of poor growth, but it's nevertheless been in an expansionary mode since June 2009, so in other words, next year will be eight years into an economic expansion. 
which by historical standards is twice as long as the typical expansion in America. So a recession is overdue regardless. And I think the recession may be triggered by a rise in interest rates. Now, people will say, well, interest rates go up because of Trump. Well, basically, interest rates began to rise in July of this year. And the bond market was weak before Trump was elected and would have been weak if he had lost the election and Hillary anyway. Clinton. The bond market was weakening for many different reasons. There are some inflationary pressures. There is a tightening of global liquidity. There is foreign selling of uh, uh, by central banks of U.S. treasuries. Individuals overseas are also selling treasuries and so forth. And the general view is bonds are unattractive and stocks are attractive. I disagree, but this is the view. So the bond market has sold off. The stock market is making new highs, essentially. Uh, The bond market is oversold, as is the gold market. Uh, So so we have a lot of, we, we have more volatility, let's put it this way. And are you worried about his rhetoric on trade? 45% 45% no. tariffs on the Chinese, or do you think that's just the opening gambit of a, of a deal-maker, a chancer? And I think he had to say things uh, to get the attention and to get the votes. And now, from the appointments to his, let's say, um, inner circle. administration or inner circle, it would seem to me that he will be very mainstream Republican. But one thing is clear, I think he will reverse some of the trends that were prevailing under Mr. Obama, namely more and more regulation in the US, more and more uh, laws. Uh, That will uh, change under the Republican administration and maybe also the handouts. But he could be a, a low regulation Republican, but he still wants to be a big spending Republican, doesn't he? Do you think Senate, Congress, yes, that is full the issue. Of f- fiscal hawks, some of them Republicans, could stop him? The, yes, they will contain him because he has to pass the budget. And even if he wants to spend a lot, say they have a $1 trillion uh, infrastructure spending, the idea is to spend that over a five years period. So we're talking about $200 billion a year. That's not a huge amount it's in a, a very glo- small in a global amount. context. In the global context, anyway. What do the Chinese spend on infrastructure a year? Well, this year they spent already, already spent on infrastructure $1.4 trillion. Blimey. So it's a bit easier when you don't have to apply for planning permission. <laughs> you see, the advantage of the planning economy of China is if they say we build a bridge, they can build the bridge and there's no opposition. There may be opposition, but the opposition has no power. If they say we build a railroad or a highway, it goes straight through the country. Nobody can object to it. You, you, you always um, illustrate your speeches with lots of references to, to history. Do you worry about the prospect of a trade war between the US and China under Trump? Do you worry about uh, retaliation, a kind of smoot hawley type tariffs? I don't worry about that. I think Trump will realise that, A, 
the imports of steel from Brazil and other countries are much larger than, say, from China. Yeah. So it's irrelevant. Number two, there are many products that America doesn't produce anymore. Uh, so they are imported from somewhere. Uh, the Chinese could export the products in theory to Germany and then on to the US. And, and the Chinese, so of course, also hold a lot of US treasuries. They can make life difficult for the Americans. Yes, to some extent, but the Fed could also buy everything that the Chinese are selling. You understand? Yeah. We are in a world of manipulation. Yeah. But I think people, mutual dependence, really. Eventually, I think that uh, the victory of Trump will be geopolitically more favorable than a victory of Clinton because Trump, he understands that Russia has a different perspective of the world, that for Russia they have a sphere of influence. He also understands that the Chinese have a sphere of influence. He understands the US doesn't need military and naval bases in 200 different countries around the world. For what? Nobody wants to attack the US. So you think Hillary was more neocon in her much rhetoric? Much more, much than Trump. more. Yes, much more. Much more dangerous for world peace and much more dangerous for world trade. But if we talk about world trade, I believe trade can diminish A, because of tightening liquidity that I refer to. Uh, global liquidity is tightening. Number two, there is slower growth in the world. Uh, despite the slightly improved statistics that were published in the US, we have a global economy that is not expanding, but rather uh, being sluggish or not, not growing. And number three, the huge advantage over the last 20 years of low labor cost countries vis-a-vis -vis high labor cost countries is diminishing not only because wages have been going up in China, as an example, but because today, say, 10 years ago, I have a factory in America, I produce goods, I employ a thousand people. Today, with robots, I can employ maybe 60 people. It's like your grandfather, in his days, a brewery employed maybe thousands of people. Nowadays, you go to a brewery, they have maybe 15 employees. So it's you, all automated. So you think as comparative advantage is eroded, uh, wage differentials are eroded, robots can be placed <laughs> anywhere, the poorer countries now have a lot of the capital to buy those robots. You think the volume of world trade could gradually diminish anyway? Yes, that is a possibility. A sort of deglobalization. Yes. Now, with the robots, place anywhere you still need someone to service the robots. And you need a system where the robots are not stolen overnight. Place one's robots in Africa. So we need nerds, we need security guards. Yes, you know, you place your robots in Africa, maybe they only be there for a day, then they're stolen. <laughs> so there will be so, some comparative advantage of, of legal structure. Um, yes, yes. and. Do you technical need the skill. te technical skills to service the robots? And you need the infrastructure that when you produce the goods with the robots, they can be shipped somewhere. So you need ports, you need airports, you need logistic facilities and so forth. Now I want to come on to your 
thoughts on um, emerging markets because of course that's your real expertise but just before we do were you surprised that Britain voted Brexit were you happy that Britain voted Brexit yes I was very happy because I think uh, the idea of the EU is not a bad idea the implementation is a catastrophe with a bloated bureaucracy in Brussels telling countries what to do. You understand? Britain has its laws. It has a Supreme Court. Switzerland, we have our laws. It's like a Supreme Court. And then the EU shouldn't come and tell us what to do. Similarly in Britain. So in Britain you have already enough regulation. But superimposing the regulation of the EU then leads to a lot of uh, say unnecessary incremental increase in the regulatory cost. And I think the Britain, Britain did absolutely the right thing. And I hope other countries in Europe will do the same thing. What they can do is they could continue to use the euro, you understand, but no longer be really part of the EU politically. Was it Oscar Wilde said the bureaucracy is expanding to fulfill the needs of the bureaucracy? To, of an expanding bureaucracy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is precisely what is happening in the Western world. You have governments, they grow and grow and grow, and they form new commissions, and then the new commissions form new commissions for everything. I'm on the board of several companies. I can tell you, the regulatory cost has gone up dramatically, and everybody hedges himself or protects himself by hiring consultants. It's crazy. But the principal worry of people in the US is getting sued by someone, you know, disgruntled shareholder. So the board of directors, they hire compensation experts and they hire compliance experts and then then so the board can always say, yeah, we consulted with these people. So nobody wants to take personal responsibility. And this is one of the problems of fund management. You see, the fund managers, they get money from investors. Then they say, well, what is your investment objective? So they nail it down to, say, an index. So the fund manager, he cannot digress much from the index because if he's, uh, say, grossly overweight one sector, and that sector happens to go down, and then his fund grossly underperforms an index, then the clients can sue him because his mandate was the index. Yeah. Over the next 12 months in, in Europe, we've got um, an election in the Netherlands where there's lots of anti-EU sentiment. We've got the prospect of Marine Le Pen being elected in France. We've got Angela Merkel going up against AFD uh, in Germany. What do you think could happen in Europe? What do you think Brexit has sparked across the rest of the European Union? Well, I think both uh, Brexit and Trump have kind of sparked uh, some thinking among ordinary people that what you read in the media is maybe not the truth and that uh, you should go out and vote in what you believe. And I think uh, part of the reason Trump won 
and part of the reason Brexit came about is that the elite and the media, and in the case of Brexit, a Mr. Obama goes to Britain and tells them what to do. But hey, what is his business to tell Britain what to do? And it's an incredible arrogance and ordinary people to scratch their heads. What's this guy telling me about? Do you think that we will see an electoral upset across Europe in the next 12 months? Do you think that could start to undermine the, the very existence of the EU, well, if not the Euro? Well, I think if it doesn't happen in the next 12 months, for sure it will happen once economic conditions deteriorate further. It's only a question of time. It doesn't mean a collapse of the EU, but it means maybe a collapse of the construct of the EU the way it is at the present time. So looser, more democratic, yes. more consultative. Yes, you could have, say, a, 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 you know, like the Italian uh, city-states of the 14th and 15th century Florence, Amalfi, Genoa, uh, Venice, they didn't fight with each other. They had maybe trade disagreements with each other because each one was uh, trying to do as much as much business as possible, but didn't go to war with each other. And one could have a Europe that says, "Okay, we may have uh, common foreign policy, but we are independent." And I think this whole not NATO concept is an antiquated concept to start with. Uh, the future of Europe is to do business with the whole world and not just with the US and not just within Europe. Doing business within Europe is just taking money from one person and putting it into another person's pocket. Doing business with the whole world is enriching the whole continent. What do you think of the prospects for Central and Eastern Europe? We're talking here in, in Warsaw, the capital of Poland. Yes. Well, I Are you have. Bullish on this region. Well, I think if I lived in Europe, and I said this already when the opening took place, and I had one of the first Russian funds, uh, Firebird. I was was a founding member of Firebird, <coughs> which has done well over time. If I was uh, living in Europe. I would spend a lot of time now in Eastern Europe because I think that stocks here in Eastern Europe uh, are very undervalued relative to the rest of the world. I live in Asia. I have most of my investment in Asian, in the Asian region because I know it well. And, uh, you know, for logistic reasons, it's easier for me to have investments in Asia than to start investing here. The only place I invested uh, significantly in the last few years is Russia and, um, and Georgia. But if I lived in Europe, because of the proximity, I would focus on Eastern Europe. And tell us about your, your sort of overview on emerging markets, in particular the emergence of what we call South-South trade, trade within the emerging markets, trade that doesn't involve the Western world. It's a big trend, isn't it? Yes, I think if you look at, the, say, 19th century, uh, 
certainly under the regime of the navigation acts and the corn laws, everything had to be shipped to Britain and then processed in Britain and then it went back to the rest of the world. So Britain had like a manufacturing and processing monopoly. This gradually began to change, but most of the trade in the 19th century was uh, emerging economies would supply raw materials to the industrialized nations of the West. They had to because they were colonies and then the West would process them and then resell them to someone else or to the same people. This is changing now in the world and uh, until 1970, 90% of the trade was occurring essentially between developed countries and now more and more there are trade between China and Russia, China and say Australia, China Brazil. and Brazil and so forth and so on. That has nothing to do with the US or Britain or Western Europe. And that changes geopolitics, <coughs> doesn't it? Yes, a lot. Because, uh, you know, it, this is particularly visible in Asia where even Japan will have to gradually rethink its position do well, they the biggest want... trading partner now is China, not America. Yes, of course. That's changed all, in the last couple of years. All Asian countries trade with China is much larger than with the US. Or you, if you travel in Asia, I was recently on a flight from Hong Kong to Chiang Mai, it's a direct flight. Chiang Mai, Northern Thailand. Yes. I was the only foreigner on that flight. All the others were some Thais, but 90% were Chinese. Actually, quite well behaved. Massive Chinese tourism now in yeah, yeah, sure. So Thailand, you know, the, the, the president, the new, newly elected president of the Philippines, Duterte, he made some very negative remarks about Mr. Obama. <laughs> he basically realizes that the Philippines should not be dictated what to do by the U.S. And he got mad at the U.S. because be during the elections, the U.S. intervened and put him down publicly in the Philippines. So he doesn't like the Philippines. Like the U.S. government found it necessary to put down General Prayut in Thailand, who is the leader now, for no reason, uh, just because he was not democratically elected. So. These leaders, they understand that for their economies, China is much more important than the U.S. So How many Americans travel to Thailand and to Vietnam and to the Philippines? How many Chinese? Yeah. There's a huge difference. So in some, you think we're really moving now back towards, over 25 years since the Berlin Wall fell, we're now moving back towards a, a bipolar if not a multipolar world? I would say multipolar. I think, first of all, when you think of it, in the 19th century, a small country like Britain controlled a large portion of the world. I mean, it's remarkable, because Britain was a naval power, and they had technology and so forth. And they could go into China and punish the Chinese to the extent that the Chinese had to give them an island, Hong Kong, 
in uh, 1842 or 43, and see it later on in the second uh, Opium War uh, territory of Kowloon, and get the Chinese to pay them a, a huge quantity of silver coins. When you think of it, nowadays Britain goes to China and wants anything. The Chinese will tell them to go to hell. <laughs> it's a different world. There has been a huge change in the structure of global power from the area of huge Western supremacy, 19th century, and the fir first, say, 60, 70 years of the 20th century. After that, relatively speaking, other countries came up. So rather than the Berlin Wall falling marking the end of history, it actually is a beginning of the a new when history speeded up. Well, if you look at say 1800 or 1750 to today, 1750 to say 1950, the share of India and China in global GDP went down from roughly 60 percent to about 5%. Since then, we're up to about 15% for these countries. So they've got a long way to go. A long way to go. Mark Faber, thanks very much. My pleasure. <laughs>